Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the pain. crew. Proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today's bonus episode is with Reverend Dr. Gareth Clayton, OAM. A man of the cloth, Gareth sought to serve his faith by providing guidance to the sailors of Australia's Navy. Gareth reminisced with Angus Horden on his time in the Navy, his role as chaplain, and beyond. Gareth, thank you very much for joining us today. Nice to be here and uh, to see you again. Gareth, can we talk about, firstly, what drew you to the cloth? The short answer is a sense of call. It's a sense of call that I had when I was quite young. And over the years, it, it worked itself out in a number of ways with people that I met, a concern for what uh, Jesus could do for people. And that led me down the track of ministry. Gareth, could you please tell us which church you were ordained? The Methodist Church in 1968, when Union Church Union with the Presbyterian Congregationalists came, we became absorbed into the United Church in 1977. Gareth, when did you decide to actually join the services? I'd been ordained by a, a rather wonderful chaplain who was a living legend in his own lifetime and who was actually decorated for gallantry as a chaplain during the Second World War. And I'd known him from uh, as a quite a young person and uh, was very much aware of the military dimension to ministry. And although he was uh, Air Force, it became pretty evident uh, in my mid-twenties that uh, I had a leaning or a sense of call towards military service. The end result was the Navy. And do you have a family history of military service or association? I had a, a great-great-grandfather in the Indian Mutiny and my father was uh, in the militia, uh, in the artillery and so on. But no, no, I don't have a, only a deep interest in it. I understand you spent a short time with the Army but you were drawn to the senior service. Yes, as I said, in my mid-twenties, uh, I had the sense of call to military chaplaincy. However, the Navy was looking for a chaplain, but at those, in those days, the minimum age for a naval chaplain was 30 because uh, the church felt that its chaplains ought to have pastoral experience. At the time, I was 27, so I was too young to, to go up, but... I had the opportunity to go into the Army Reserve, and uh, I did, and that's another story, but I was attached uh, for two years to the engineers, RAE 2 div. The big thing about that, and, and this is how the sense of call and God's preparation for ministry keeps coming through. At the time, it was the time of national servicemen, so I had a lot to do with national servicemen, and not least with the a National Service Officer Training Unit at uh, Skyville. I cut my teeth working 
in a ministry with young men who didn't want to be military, but who were, and for whom I have the profoundest respect and of their courage and their dedication. So I had that opportunity and it has stood me in good stead ever since. And this, of course, was for the Vietnam period? It was. It was. Gareth, can we go to the Navy and talk about some of the highlights of your career? Perhaps we could start with the resurrection of Darwin. The most devastating thing I had seen in my life till that time was sailing into Darwin Harbour two, three days after the cyclone. And I will recall one of the uh, sailors on our ship who had been at Nagasaki when the atom bomb was dropped and uh, a more senior sailor who made the observation that it reminded him, absolute devastation, reminded him of the um, devastation of Nagasaki. So my very first sign of Darwin was absolutely decimated, flattened. No trees, no leaves on trees or anything. Darwin had been evacuated. There was, of the 45,000, I think there are only 9,000 left in the town. And if I say that uh, I will never forget the sense of hope that Australian sailors seem to bring wherever they go, and subsequent it wasn't only in Darwin, it's in places all over the world, but from devastation and hopelessness, a group of sailors would arrive in an area, begin cleaning up, working, supporting and sustaining, and just not only change the, the face of the community, but also encourage the lives and give hope to those who had lost it all in the cyclone. Moving experience. And your ship at the time was Stalwart? I was based on Stalwart, but I was actually with the fleet, so I had... Um, pastoral responsibility for all of the, the ships up there at the time, and there are eight of them. Can you also share some other moving experiences, such as the Coral Sea 50th anniversary? The Coral Sea 50th anniversary was unusual insofar as, for the first time in uh, television history, a direct tele service was directly telecast at sea on USS Blue Ridge uh, across Australia. Uh, that was a technical component. But from a ministry point of view, from a national point of view, to conduct a service on an allied ship and with people who were brought together, coast watchers, for instance, but people who had served in the uh, the Australian ships and uh, was a very moving thing and uh, something that I think was very special. Gareth, you also did the 50th anniversary service at Guadalcanal. That was a special occasion as well. I was in Tobruk, and Tobruk was in Guadalcanal for the 50th anniversary of the sinking of the, of the Canberra. And we went to sea out, we didn't have to go far out there, but we anchored directly above Canberra. She was down below. And I conducted a memorial service and we had something like, I think there were 16 Canberra survivors on board. And it was a, a tremendous, another tremendous experience that was hallowed and full of respect and, and thankfulness. And uh, we recall a lot of things, uh, not least the heroism of, of young 16, 17 year olds, 18 year olds. How about the burial of the unknown soldier? A remarkable highlight. There were three chaplains took part, one from the Navy, one from the Army and one from the Air Force. I was fortunate enough to be the Navy chaplain in that service. 
And among many things that I recall is the procession of the cordage up Anzac Parade to the War Memorial. Lining Anzac Parade were the veterans of ships and regiments, squadrons, and to whom this was a tremendously moving occasion. I mean, it's a lovely situation, uh, the War Memorial, at any time, uh, but today the feeling, uh, you would never get it again. Just there was soul, a beautiful soul, a respectful soul and an honouring soul present on that occasion. Can you also tell us about the launching from the catapult in the carrier? That's an experience in itself. The Melbourne was a 20,000 tonnes and she only had a a 2 to 250 metre flight deck. Now remember that the American carriers, like Kitty Hawk that we were exercising with at this time, uh, had 80,000 tonnes and they could launch and recover at the same time, whereas Melbourne only had one catapult and she had to launch and then recover. But the fleet air arm, the Australian sailors in the fleet air arm were so professional and profound, uh, we could match uh, the big carriers with combat air patrols one for one. But I'd seen uh, hundreds of planes shot off on the catapult and arrested. And uh, I had an opportunity to fly in an STG, a tracker, fascinating experience. I was strapped in, of course, and when the uh, flight deck officer puts his flag on the deck, that's when the catapult officer fires the catapult. And they reckon you've got, uh, you can count three seconds from the time he puts his flag on the deck to when the catapult activates. And I was determined to uh, count this. And so I was watching carefully. I went one, two, three... When I said one, we were still on the deck. When I said two, we were still on the deck. And when I said three, I swear the ship was about four or five hundred metres astern. <laughs> it's a powerful experience. Also, you visited a number of ships at sea by Hilo to conduct church services. If you were fortunate enough to be at sea in a carrier in those days, it was the carrier had the Hilos and so that you could uh, visit all the ships in company and you'd, they call it the Holy Helo, not surprisingly, and uh, you'd fly over and hover on the quarter deck of a destroyer or a frigate and winch down and conduct a service and then the helicopter would come back and winch you up and take you on to the next one and it was quite a, a, a remarkable way to uh, conduct Sunday service. I haven't done that too often, not since then, but I've done hundreds of them over the, over the years and it was a great way to do it. Now, of course, all our ships have one or two helicopters, so it's, it's not quite as uh, rare as it was. Gareth, being a typical sailor, you've been posted all around the world, but I know the Garden Island Chapel here in Sydney is very dear to your heart. It's very dear to my heart, particularly the chapel. And the Garden Island Chapel, while it's the oldest in Australia, is also my favourite. Garden Island is is special, and uh, I was fortunate enough to spend a number of years there uh, in one way or another. Can you also share how the Sinbosun's insignia or badge, as I understand, is the oldest in the Navy? The chaplain's badge is the oldest in the Navy. Strangely enough, I'm very proud of the fact that I belong to the oldest unchanged seagoing branch in the Navy if we take our antecedents as the Royal Navy, and we do. Chaplains have been at sea since 652 AD, and uh, a man named Utah is credited with being the first naval chaplain. 
sailing from Northumberland to Kent. And ever since then, chaplains have been at sea, in the right sense of the term, ever since, doing what they always do, which is offer ministry in the name of Jesus. Interestingly enough, of course, the historians among us will tell us that if we start in 652 AD, that's about 800 years before the the Royal Navy was established, and you'd be quite right. But interestingly enough, uh, when times have been good and bad, sometimes religion has been popular, sometimes it's been unpopular, but through all those times, the chaplains have been continuously operating as chaplains, as ministers, Uh, of the gospel in the Navy and still do today. Gareth, I can imagine that when you leave port and you're posted on a particular exercise, as time goes by and the sailors are further and further away from home, would that be an opportunity that they would come and talk to you and open up more? Yes, but that depends very much on the chaplain. Young men particularly, and young women now, are private in a sense, but also have the, a frame of mind in which they feel that they like to um, handle things themselves. They've got the enthusiasm of youth and the advantage of it. It all depends on how well you know the sailors. And it's the result of being around, knowing them individually, knowing their families, and them uh, feeling they can trust you. That's absolutely essential uh, to keep your counsel and to keep uh, what they say private. Um, The opportunity is there, but you've got to look for it. But there's plenty of it when you find it. With your deployments abroad during wartime, it was predominantly during the Vietnam War. Yes, I didn't go to Vietnam, nor did I serve. But you would have been working with sailors, etc., who had been through Vietnam. And the Gulf War. What experiences did you find from that? It depends when it happens in their life. Sometimes uh, people see it with excitement, see it as an adventure, though that is not a lasting, a lasting impression. It's a phase they go through. I think most people are very sensitive to and alert to the pressure and, and indeed one might say the sadness of conflict. And given their choice, they would seek to avoid it if they could. It raises a lot of issues in terms of the value of life and and how people see situations and each other. You could appreciate the irony that here you are on a warship, which is a means by which to kill people, yet here you are a man of God seeking peace and care to your parishioners who are on board. And that's one of the critical components of chaplaincy ministry. A chaplain, I think, representing God and being faithful to Jesus, seeks to help individuals to understand and come to terms with the circumstances in which they find themselves. Not only that, but if we can, we try and support them and encourage them as they individually work through various things they feel and situations and so on. And war and conflict is one of them. I don't think war is ever justified. But it is sadly, from as far as I can see, almost inevitable. And I think that the only mistake we can make is in times of peace is not to work as hard as we possibly can to prolong the peace so that the times between conflicts become further and further. But a chaplain, I think, is because of who he is, what he is and where, what his standing is in the military, 
especially the Navy from my point of view, is in a position to encourage and support uh, individuals um, as they work through the situations in which they find themselves and the ideas that they are challenged with. Gareth, you've spent decades and decades serving the church at war with the Navy, etc. And yet in the late 90s, your life changed. Can you tell us where you next found God with boys at a school? It was that call to ministry again. The same sense of call I had when I went into the uh, parish ministry and that I believe led me to the Navy. I think there came a time when God led me into the school ministry at Knox in particular. The interesting thing is that almost every stage of my life, I've done something that's helped me down the track. For instance, while I was going through university and college training for the ministry, I started working in the industries in Newcastle. And in the holidays, the long vacation, I went back to, uh, to work in the industries. And to some extent, the, they were the happiest days of my life. But I learned about people. I learned about men in those days in particular. And that gave me an insight into Navy people when I came into the Navy. And because I had worked with young folk in the Navy, I'd posted to the Naval College and I'd commissioned the Defence Academy. Uh, when I came to Knox, my Navy experience helped me no end with the boys. And I think they love the Navy almost as much as I do. All that to say is that the steps were sequential, as it turns out, as best I see it, and uh, one sort of followed on from the other. And there's a story about some sailors who actually help you decide to go to Knox. When it came up that I, I might be retiring from the Navy, and, and there is a retiring age for the Navy, and I had, was coming up for that, I might add that they keep changing the goalposts later and, and there's some, some idea that I might still be on the standby reserve 20 years later. But anyhow, I had met a, some very fine folk uh, in the various ships associations and uh, one of them was your dad, uh, John Horden, uh, who was a, a member of the, of the Shropshire Association. And um, we'd been talking one day and they were concerned about where I was going. And I happened to say, well, I might be going to Knox. And uh, they were very excited about that, both John and his brother Marsden. And, uh, and a friend of theirs, John Date, who'd also had its sons at Knox. And they were very, uh, very excited for me. Small world. I remember Dad telling me this because he actually ran the headmaster and said how good this guy was and the school would be very, very lucky and it would be very much in our interests that you were offered the job. So he told me that he really pursued you and didn't sort of give you an option not to join. And there's lots of funny experiences, but... That story sort of went full circle in that dad was part of you joining Knox. And then when my son joined Knox later, I remember we were at one of the ovals on Christmas Day and you were recounting one of your stories on board Melbourne and you started to sway. I remember that. We'd been away for uh, about six months and we're coming back and it was uh, the week before Christmas, I believe, and coming across the Australian Bight, I had the thought that uh, Christmas caroled by candlelight service would be rather a good idea on a ship. I didn't get very far with that in the carrier because uh, carols by candlelight was a disaster in a, in a fleet carrier because of the abgas. 
and the extreme fire danger. So we amended it to torchlight, candles by torchlight. Coming across the, the bite, uh, we weren't able to have it on the flight deck because of the, the swell and the, and the pitching deck, but we had it in the aircraft hangar with the lift well in being the, uh, the stage. And so uh, one of the things that made me smile was uh, as, as we were singing the carols, there was no need to sway because we were swaying with the, with the swell and the, and the tide in the normal course of events. Uh, but it was a moving thing as well. Can you tell us about that special window of the Canberra Shropshire Memorial? Uh, Canberra Shropshire Association in the early 90s wanted to do something to commemorate the two ships. And space was at a premium in the chapel, but they located a base above the stairwell, raised a, a lot of money to get these, the, the two uh, stained glass windows commissioned. And one is of Canberra, one is of Shropshire. And it was a, a rather wonderful experience. Uh, I actually did the commissioning and the dedication of the two windows. One of the things that the impressions I was left with is that Somehow or another, in giving a, a physical expression to the two ships, it, it sort of gave a, a depth to the sailors and the officers who'd been part of both ships. And here it is 40 years, 50 years after the event that, uh, again, elderly men, but brought together by a spirit that they never left and they never lost, I should say. And Gareth, it's significant because if you look at the Australian Navy in the Second World War, our capital ships were our county-class cruisers. We had Canberra and, of course, Shropshire, Australia, etc. But these were big ships. And in the Battle of Lady Gulf, the complement under Captain Godfrey Nichols was about 1,200 sailors and officers at the time. But you were rotating men all the time. So literally there are thousands and thousands of men that have served on these big ships and a lot are from Sydney. And there's no specific memorial where they can go to and actually see the crest of their ship or a focus point. But you gave them that. And that's why for all those Sydney sailors, your Garden Island Chapel is so important in particular. Well, that was the case. The, the, the Canberra Shropshire Association worked very hard and long to do this. But it's interesting you should mention about having a focal point. This was, a, in my mind, when I had the idea of creating the Chapel of Remembrance as a part of the, of the Garden Island Chapel, and it's underneath. And it means that people who have served are able to put a plaque in to the person that they're honouring or remembering of the serviceman. So many of these young men were young men and I know so many who had their 21st birthday after they were discharged from the Navy, having been at war at sea for three years. Now, that's tremendous. They're only young. And of course, uh, equally, I've discovered it amongst the Rands as well, though not in the same numbers, but equally with the same intensity and pride of service. And um, that's special as well. Actually, speaking of the RANDs, I remember seeing you at an Anzac Day march in Sydney when you were leading the RANDs. That's just about every year for the last 17, I think. Yeah, good on you. Yes. Uh, look, uh, that's a, 
I'm very proud and uh, of the fact that I was invited uh, about 18 years ago to be the patron of the ex-RANS Association. And it came about because of, uh, of the services that I conducted at Garden Island for them and like I did with, uh, with the Corvettes and the, my associations of, with each of those has, has developed a chaplain with the Canberra, for instance, Canberra Shropshire and life member of the Corvettes and the Fair Milers and patron of the N-Class. And all that began with these services that I conducted and the RANS were special. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud to be part of the, uh, they're, a, they're a fine bunch of women. Now there again, you, you hear some uh, extraordinary tales. For instance, I'm aware of so many who joined from different walks of life, had nothing in common with each other. I'm reminded of two ladies who were signalers uh, in Perth, one from New South Wales, one from Western Australia, had absolutely nothing in common, but shared the same watch for 18 months and have been friends for the last 60 years. And the only thing they had in common was the watch they shared as Rands. I mean, that's special, isn't it? Gareth, it's an amazing story. We have heard about your service at sea, at shore. Thank you for your service and thank you for talking with us today. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. You can also email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>